Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. This podcast is part of the Darkness Collective. Visit darkness.org to discover more shows like this one. The Darkness Awaits. You're listening to the Wicked Library. <laughs> From author Christopher Long comes Fluff. Imagine every morning when you wake up, it's there. Maybe it's right by your face, or maybe it's down by your bare feet at the bottom of the bed. It looks like a soft toy, a little pink bunny rabbit. You didn't put it there last night, but it's there in the morning just like it's been there every single morning, looking at you, smiling at you. It appears out of thin air, and it disappears when you turn your back. What if this isn't a prank? What if this is really happening? What if this never stops? There is a new horror in the world, and it has two pink ears and a fluffy little tail. This is where the madness begins. This is Fluff. Available now on Amazon. Fluff by Christopher Long. Warning. If you haven't figured out that the Wicked Library has strong themes of an adult sometimes violent and decidedly scary nature, then by all means, keep listening. Go on, it's just that you're not going to complain about it. Oh, you can try, but you'll be scoffed at and ridiculed mercilessly by the host, the narrators, the producers, and you could bet your dangling participle me. Go ahead, try it. You're not going to like it one little bit. But our millions of listeners will eat it up. (laughs) And that's not hyperbole, kiddies. So there's your warning. Enjoy the show, kiddies. Welcome to episode number 811 of the Wicked Library, our extra wicked spring anthology. As always, before we get started today, a big thank you to all of our Patreon and direct supporters. This episode would not exist without them. If you enjoy this show and you want to help us keep making it, you should support us on Patreon. Not only do all of our patrons get a completely ad-free show, they also get the highest quality version of the show, access to our archives of the first five seasons, official bookmarks, and... Depending upon the level of support, you'll get to hear these bonus stories before the free listeners, and at the $10 a month and above level, you'll get to hear our new show, available only to our $10 a month supporters, The Private Collector. We're working very hard this season to make the show sustainable for Season 9 and beyond, and obviously we need your help to do that. A big thank you to those who took the time to rate us 5 stars and write a short review for us on iTunes. Your ratings do help others find the show. And, of course, we love hearing from you and learning why you listen to the wicked tales we share. Thank you so much to everyone for listening and supporting the show, and, of course, to our contributors. If you enjoy the stories you hear, find the work of the authors and buy their work. It helps keep them making more. You can find links to them and their work at thewickedlibrary.com. And one last bit of news before we get into today's episode. We do have a free episode of The Private Collector, a bonus story, if you will, over at victoriaslift.com. We did a crossover between The Lift and The Private Collector for today's episode. So while it is episode four of season one of The Private Collector, it's also episode four of season three of The Lift. We will have 11 episodes of The Private Collector this season, and nine of those will be exclusive episodes only available to the supporters at The Private Collector level of support.
Have a seat, but don't relax. I am your librarian, and this time there's plenty to be afraid of. Hold on to yourselves before something else grabs hold of you. Don't worry about the lights. It's darker than ever now. Stop screaming. Something extra wicked this way comes. <laughs> Our first story is told by Mike Delgadio, Nicole Goodnight, and yours truly, a terrifying, disturbing little piece called Asphalt Smile by Zachary T. Owen. Asphalt Smile by Zachary T. Owen I am God, not of the world but of this road, even before it was a road. I have long been forgotten. Many do not take this road, and so I have grown bored. I create, sometimes, but my creations do not last. I have forgotten how to wield my power to its potential, and this brings me great sorrow. Once I created a flock of sheep and turned the road into a field, and I watched them graze. In an hour, it was all gone. I see the road beneath me like an asphalt smile. I wish it was sentient. I wish it was alive in the way that I am. It's hard to be here. It's hard to be alone. Sometimes I wonder if I was created by him. I wonder if he really exists. If I am the child of the Christian God. I wonder why I've been forgotten. Perhaps I am a gift to earth from a different, more sinister Christian figure. Perhaps none of this is real. I have no memory of when I started, just that it's been a long time. And I am alone here. I cannot leave. I watch, ever vigilant, so vigilant and observant of the passing time. Today I saw a fox. It was gone before I could keep it here. I created an army of marching bears. I cannot believe it. I colored them like the sun. They stepped, heavy and burning, creatures with no purpose but to march forward. They lit up the night in orange and red bursts. I felt happy. But in my happiness, I didn't take precautions. Those bears marched right out of my sight, into a world beyond my grasp. Now others will have them. An unintended gift of beauty sent into the other dominion. Perhaps they will look for where the burning bears marched from. Maybe they will come here, the people outside, and I will see them. It's a nice thought. (sighs) Oh, I'm tired. I've tried to create new things. I made a castle of light and it spiraled out of existence almost as it was born. I'm running out of ideas. Tired. I'm tired. I want to sleep. Years have gone by. They have little meaning here. I have not slept. I'm not sure if gods can sleep. Where did I hear of sleep? I can't remember. I tried to make the road into a forest. Who am I talking to? The road, maybe? I don't think it listens to me. No. I must be talking to myself. Sometimes I have what could be a memory of me. But not me as I am now, but as a man. A man watching people in their sleep. A caretaker. A father figure. But it cannot be real. If I was ever a man, I would remember how I became a god. I do not remember... So I could not have been a man. I do not trust this memory. I think I made it up to pass the time. More years. I imagine a giant gun and turn it away from the road and point it at where my face might be. If I had a face. This gun can shoot ethereal bullets which snuff out gods and shatter miracles like... 
The gun is imagined. It is not real. I do not have the energy to create it. Something has happened. A car. A car has turned onto the road. There appears to be a family inside. A mother and a father and a teenage girl. It has been a long time since I have seen anything but wandering animals and diligent insects. I watch the car as it cruises along, and I feel a deep, tender love for these creatures. I want to make them stay with me. I want to make them worship me. There will be no more loneliness. Finally, devotees have come into my small kingdom. What a great joy! What an inspiration! The car will not leave me. I will make the road longer. I know I can do it. There is no other choice. The power. I must expel it from the core of my being. Must give it everything I have. They will not leave me so soon. Not like the bears or the sheep or the fox who skittered across the road into the trees before I had time to examine the beauty of his red fur. They've been driving for hours now. I've been listening to them talk. I've learned their names. Mother is called Janet. Father is called Bruce. Daughter is called Ophelia. They are anxious. Bruce keeps lighting a cigarette, stubbing it out and saying, No, no, I can't do that. Can't do it. I promised myself. Ophelia stares vacantly out the passenger window, moving her finger along the cool glass. Janet is trying to read a book, but has been looking at the same page a long time. In fact, I do not remember her ever turning a page. Bruce only has one hand on the steering wheel. The other is always near his pack of cigarettes. Janet keeps saying to him, If you want to quit, you'd be wise to throw out that last pack. No, he says. I'll keep it. Just in case. This sure think- is a long road. Ophelia says. She lets out a long, exasperated sigh. Janet shuts her book. We'll be there soon, don't worry. Grandma won't mind if we arrive a little late. I think I took a wrong turn. I don't recognize any of this. Well, then turn around, Mr. Master Navigator. Janet chides. Bruce looks a little wounded, a little spiteful. He keeps driving a while before giving in. He makes a U-turn. As I watch them, I realize I must do something to make them happy, to keep them in good spirits. If they're going to be my company, they need to be in good spirits. I send a stream of gushing, colored lights across the road, not a yard away from the car. It is a beautiful display. I am proud of my skill here. The lights pulsate and swirl like a caterpillar, no, a a worm, a serpent from heaven. The hues change with rapidity. The thing expands and dances. I know they will love it. I am wrong. Janet begins to cry. Bruce watches gawk-eyed. He keeps saying things like, What on earth? And, I hope it's not dangerous. Ophelia is the only one who seems unafraid. She watches in awe. It's so pretty. She says. It is incredible. It can't hurt us. Nothing so beautiful could hurt us. When the light dies, Bruce steps on the gas, and he drives as fast as he can toward the end of the road. And in that moment... I pity him, for there is no end of the road. Bruce has stopped driving. He knows something is wrong. The car sits on the road like a metal slug. I think about lifting it into the air for a moment, and then I do. Janet screams, but not louder than Bruce. Janet cries, but not harder than Bruce. Ophelia laughs at first then feels bad when she sees her parents are crying and pretends to be upset. I just want them to love me. I want them to worship me. Worship me, I call. Who is that? Bruce asks. Don't talk to it, Janet says. It's going to kill us. I feel bad, and I set the car down gently, softly, and I do not speak again, at least not yet. They aren't ready. I decide to make them feel sleepy. In time, they will surrender to their fatigue and rest. I predict Bruce, ever ready to try and prove his masculinity, will promise his wife and daughter he will keep watch while they sleep. 
This is exactly what he does. But sleep gets to him, too. While they are sleeping, I place Janet in the back seat and Ophelia in the front passenger seat. I can't explain why I do this. It just seems like the thing to do. It's not the only thing I do. I leave a strange symbol on the hood of the car. The tires become a different shape. The trees, I turn them red. I intensify the moon's glare so they will better see all this when they awake. Bruce is not happy. He keeps staring at the symbol with his hand on his chin, aghast, and then proclaiming, (laughs) We're obviously the victims of a magic cult. He has smoked his entire pack of cigarettes. His words are punctuated by coughs. Janet keeps shaking her head. She keeps insisting he doesn't know anything about cults or magic or magic cults. I love her condescending tone. Ophelia runs her hand across the changed tires and admires them. How do you think it does these things? She asks. I see a worshipper in her. It? You're calling it an it now? Bruce says. I see a sacrifice in him. No, I don't mean that. I can't harm these people. They are the only thing I have. Meaning, they have brought it to my world. I have something to be God for. My dominion is peopled. Well, she has to call it something, doesn't she? We have to call it something. Oh, (laughs) that tone. She doesn't blindly follow authority. It may be a challenge to convert her to my flock. So... You agree something is at work here, Janet. I do. She still hasn't left the car. She will never leave the car, it seems. She hesitates before speaking again. But I don't think it's a cult. Why not? Do you see anybody out here, Bruce? Have there been any signs of human life? Where did that voice come from? I almost feel bad for Bruce. He is losing face. Just because we can't see them... Doesn't mean that. Are you two going to start arguing again? Ophelia cuts in. I think we're going to be okay. It. Whatever it is. Can't want to hurt us. Nothing bad has happened to us. We just can't leave. And that's not bad? Janet says. She glances at Bruce and the dashboard. <laughs> so much for visiting Grandma. We're never leaving. She hides a sob. Tears. That's good. Bruce sucks in air nervously. I see him wipe away tears. Well, this must be the symbol of the cult on the trunk. It has to be. It has to mean something. Bruce, give up. There is no cult. As Janet says this, I play around with the idea of creating a cult. It might be fun. This symbol, it means something. Oh, yeah? Well, what do the red trees mean? Bruce stares at the wilderness on either side of the road. Just to make things even more interesting, I change the trees to blue. He screams in frustration. Or is it fear? I'm not sure if I care. Something deep in me is touched by this. I never thought I would feel this way again. Bored. I'm bored. I've shown these people many miracles and small horrors. Always they react the same. Bruce gets scared. He tries to hide it. His wife undermines him. His wife also feels fear. Ophelia admires my work and silently enjoys it. Sometimes not silently. I want to look inside their heads. See the inner workings. Maybe if I do that, I will find something more interesting. Something more complicated that burns within them. But I don't know how. I've never known how to do that. But... Maybe I could get them to do things. Maybe I can't see the thoughts they already have, but I could put thoughts into them. Yes, it's something to consider. I don't want to be bored anymore. They've been here for days. I've slowly been poisoning Bruce. I whisper to him that his family is in on this. They want him to fail as a father figure. He isn't man enough. Could never be. Is it cruel to do this? I don't know. It just seems to me I'm just telling the truth. That's not cruel, is it? He's been crying a lot. More than I expected. And Janet, 
I keep laying my presence on her, letting her feel my existence. It's not sexual. I do not know that I'm a sexual being. I do not seem to have a gender. She squirms under my touch at first, but as the days pass, she seems to grow comforted by it. I have put something into her, a kind of feeling she cannot explain. It is a heavy feeling, I suspect. It is soothing to her, like a drug. She grows complacent under my touch. She stops yelling at Bruce. Maybe she isn't so strong after all. I leave Ophelia alone. I let her watch her family turn strange. It takes me too long to remember that these people need to eat. I drop a carcass from the sky. It is an animal I conceived of myself. I'm not sure what it is. They approach it hesitantly for a while. Then Ophelia digs in, clawing and grabbing at the soft, pliable meat. Her growing body needs food the most. When she doesn't appear to be sick, the others dig in. Janet gobbles the meat, quivering under my touch while she shovels it into her mouth. Bruce is more hesitant. He eats it away from them. His family is beginning to frighten him. I can see it on his face. I will allow them to sleep for several days and nights. I want them to wake, disoriented. I make them pass out in the middle of the road, beside the carcass. What am I doing? Am I not merciful? Is this how gods act? I am so sorry. While they sleep, I hate myself. I am so lonely, even with my new flock. Why do I feel like this? Why am I wretched to them? I am sorry, sorry, so sorry. I am sorry. Janet loves me now. She worships me. Oh, God of the road. She always screams to the sky. Protect me. This didn't come swiftly. Months have passed. Ophelia is thin despite always going to the meat first, eating her fill. She is not strong enough to hold her mother back when she offers her hands to the sky. She is suspicious of me. She is tired of my illusions. She does not like the taste of my meat. She suspects my intention is to always keep her there. I can feel it. Bruce is quiet. He eats what he needs and then remains in the car. At night, he talks to his dead parents, telling them his sins. For a family, they comfort each other almost not at all. They talk very little. They only gather for the meat. They only gather for the rain, opening their mouths with a deep thirst. They look at each other with traces of aggression. I'm not sure, but I think they are acting this way because I have malnourished them, and because, when I'm bored, I whisper conflicting thoughts into them. Today she snaps. Today Janet has laid her worldly possessions in a circle around her. She begs for me to take them. It is an offering. I don't need these things anymore. I lift her possessions away and whisk them out into the forest. I lay my presence on Janet's face and shoulders and I soothe her. I let her know my love. She is crying now. I wish I could teach her my gospel, show her the rules of the faith of me. But I don't know of any rules or any gospel. Bruce watches in horror. He cannot take it. He keeps trying to edge into the woods, but I will not let him pass beyond the road, beyond my grasp. I have placed barriers. They cannot be seen, but they are felt. Bruce itches the raw red spots all over his body, the places he touched the barrier. It's amusing to me that he's had all this time to try and escape. He could have, but not now, not with my barriers. Was he afraid to leave his family behind, even though he's grown wary of them? Ophelia tries to look after her father recognizing her mother is lost to her now. Ophelia doesn't love me. Ophelia hates me. She hates me. I'm beginning to hate her. She follows Bruce, calling after him. He ignores her. He is afraid of her. He is afraid of his wife. He charges off the road and into the barrier. 
Again, he falls to the gravel and weeps. His face is oozing with sores. It's finally happened. Janet has killed Bruce. She smacked him in the head with a tire iron. I am watching her now. She is looking up, looking for me. I am not here. For you. A sacrifice. She cries. Ophelia cowers in the back seat of the car, gnawing on a piece of meat. She tried to defend her father. She saw the wild look in Janet's eyes. It was enough. For you. Janet repeats. He is for you. I watch. I feel empty. There is no satisfaction here. Time has flown. Bruce is rotten. His belly is pregnant with maggots. Finally, I speak to Janet. Eat him, I tell her. Eat him. It is the only way you can show your love to me, your keeper. And so she does. She tears into his stinking, decomposing flesh. She takes huge, hungry bites. She chokes down maggots. All through this, Ophelia remains in the car. She throws up. She heaves and heaves after her stomach is empty, and she will keep heaving deep into the night. I couldn't help myself. I told Janet I need another sacrifice. I'm watching her now, watching her chase Ophelia, tire iron lifted above her head. They run along the road. They could run for eternity. An outside observer would never guess they are mother and daughter. They look nothing alike anymore. Janet is haggard and wild-eyed, and her clothes streaked with gore and dirt. Ophelia has attempted to maintain a look of civility. She hasn't succeeded exactly, but in comparison to her once mother, she is a portrait of the civilization she has left. At some point I realize Janet has killed Ophelia and is chewing on her throat, blood misting her mouth and nostrils. How long has she been eating her daughter? I wasn't even paying attention. I lost myself to some thought I no longer recall. Janet throws her bloodied hands to the sky. For you. She looks like she is in love. She smiles, slivers of meat in her teeth, her tongue painted red. The sun glares on her. She looks like a vampire. Or a zombie. Something undead. Please... Let me feel your touch. She tells me. I will worship you forever. I sigh and submit to her request. I crush her with my presence. Leave her a mangled mess of bones and insides smeared on the road. The asphalt smile. It was too easy. Too easy to kill her. Too easy to turn her against her family. Is this what I wanted? I don't know. But I feel nothing. These people, they meant nothing to me. And did the fox? Did the sheep? Did the bears? I don't know. Days. Months. I don't do anything. Nothing is created. The road persists in being a road. I don't care. I finally gather the energy to scoop the corpses from the road. I hurl them into the trees. Ophelia gets caught in the branches. I leave her there. She will continue to rot. Animals will consume her. She will disappear. I fling the car even further. I hope it lands somewhere far away and kills somebody. Years upon years upon years upon years upon years. I want to die. Lonely. I'm the epicenter of loneliness. Every person who has ever felt alone, all of them, their gathered sorrow, their gathered pitiful, sad, overwhelming shrouds of despair, are nothing, not compared to me. Maybe I am not the god of the road. Maybe I am the god of loneliness. Janet? Ophelia? Bruce? 
I'm sorry. I miss you. Come back. Oh, something has happened. A hitchhiker. A hitchhiker has come by some mistake to the road. Oh, how long it has been. I will not be lonely anymore. Our next story is written by returning author Lee Foreman, told by yours truly. Maxwell's Cellar by Lee A. Foreman His voice echoed, came to my ears from a great distance. Wake up, you worthless slag. Cracks of light burned my eyes. Slowly they grew until I saw the familiar boots of Sam Brooks. Those stupid fucking skull buckles. Peculiar how my first thought lent itself to something so unimportant. He grabbed my collar and pulled me from the floor. Come on, you shit. We're gonna go see the boss. My attempts at a response led to no success. Throat dry. Lips cracked, desperate for water. I couldn't even croak. Not that I knew what the fuck I would say. I had no idea where I was and little memory of how I got there. Something about a bar and a yellow neon light. I'm pretty sure it was shaped in the name of some cheap beer. Sam dragged me down the hall, jeans riding along the splintered wood floor. The dark stains didn't instill comfort about where I was headed. They spoke of bad things. Blood spilled. His fist against the door thundered in my ears. Three hard knocks, and the door opened. Sam dragged me in and dropped me on the floor at the foot of an old metal desk. So here he is, Maxwell said. Where you been? You know I hate it. When I have to look for someone, it just gets to me. Sam kicked me with his stupid fucking boot. I found him at the bar on East Main, he said. Maxwell laughed. Figures. He was all licked up and ready for the taking. So you didn't give Sam here much trouble then, did you, little fella? No, boss. No trouble at all. That's good. That's very good. Maxwell shook his head took a half-smoked cigar from his ashtray, and lit it. With great effort, I managed to cough out a few words. What am I... What am I doing here? They laughed at my question. (laughs) I think he's a bit confused, Sam said, still chuckling. Won't be for long. Maxwell pulled deep on his cigar and blew a cloud of smoke in my face. You took my money from Bobby. Now, why would you go do something like that? I tried hard to focus, tried to remember who the hell he was talking about. I repeated the name in my head until it lost meaning. Come on, Brett, Sam said. Just admit what you've done. Bobby, I asked. She's the one with the scar on her cheek, isn't she? Well, look at that. His memory's starting to come back. Maxwell sat up from his chair and walked around the desk. He grabbed my hair lifted my head, looked me in the eyes. Why'd you take my money? I don't know what you mean. I didn't take any money. I couldn't remember whether I did or not, but it didn't seem like something I would do. Oh, you took it all right, Maxwell said. Bobby wouldn't lie to me. Isn't that right, Sam? Damn right, boss. Now, you gotta pay for what you've done. And a few black and blue mucks... Aren't gonna cut it, are they, Sam? No, sir. Not even close. I knew I was a scumbag. Who didn't? But I was pretty sure I didn't take any money. Not from Maxwell. Take him to the cellar, Maxwell said. Jesus, boss. Isn't that a little harsh? The uncertain tone in Sam's voice spoke of something more horrible than I could imagine. He had an iron stomach, 
and no conscience. The wavering of his words told me it was something even he wasn't going to enjoy. And that terrified me. Sam tied my hands behind my back and lifted me off the floor. He dragged me back through the hallway and outside into the alley. Normally, that would be where it ended, with a bullet in the head. But I knew they had something more sinister in mind. He opened the back door of his old Chevy and threw me in. I heard the engine roar to life and he drove with a heavy foot. I watched familiar streets go by until we ended up in an unfamiliar place. We must have traveled a few miles without seeing a single house. The car stopped and the engine went silent. I'm sorry, Sam said. It was that moment reality became apparent. Sam probably never apologized to anyone in his entire life. Especially not to someone like me. But he did. By the sound of his voice, he meant it. The sadistic bastard was actually sorry for what he was about to do. I thought back on my life. The years flashed by in moments. I saw things I'd done and put a sour taste in my mouth. I'd been a good-for-nothing piece of shit since I was able to raise my middle finger. But if Sam felt sorry for me, I didn't deserve what was coming. He dragged me out of the car and walked me toward an old wood shack surrounded by dark forest. Few stars shined through the canopy above. My guts felt like they were about to come out of my ass. Sam stopped at the door and stood motionless. He took keys from his pocket and looked at them for a while before unlocking the padlock and pulling me inside. We descended stairs that went down to the pit of the earth. At the bottom, a pale yellow light glowed. I heard something move, and Sam jumped. It was then I realized why Sam had an issue with what Maxwell ordered. Even he was afraid. What's down there? I asked, my voice barely able to formulate the words. What the fuck is it? Just tell me. Sam ignored my pleas and took a deep breath as we got to the bottom of the stairs. A wood bar stool stood in the center of the cellar. The yellow light came from a neon sign, just like the one at the bar, with that same logo for cheap beer, the one I sat next to most nights of my shitty adult life. Sam pushed me toward the stool. He kept me at arm's length, keeping his hand on my back. He forced me to sit down and tied my hands and feet to the wooden legs. Black, stringy appendages shot out from a dark corner of the room and latched onto my skin. Dozens of them stuck all over my body. It was as if they each contained thousands of tiny teeth that chewed through my clothes and bit down on every nerve receptor within their vicinity. Intense pain flooded through me like electricity. Whatever it was, could not be seen. It was blacker than the emptiness of space, something that didn't just absorb light, but pulled it completely out of existence. A foul-looking tube crawled along the floor like a serpent. Its slime-covered surface glistened in the yellow light worked its way up my leg, pulsating and releasing a nauseating odor. The intestine-like appendage entered my mouth and forced a slick mucus down my throat. I gagged against it, but it flowed like a fucking river. I felt my own vomit forced back into my gut. It was feeding me feeding me so it could keep me alive for who knows how long while it suckled on my flesh. I just want to let you know something, Sam said as he backed away toward the stairs. My eyes rolled in his direction. It was me. I took the money.
And closing the show today, we bring you a story told by Darren Marlar and Mary Murphy, Cyst by David Gresky. Cyst by David Gresky. Dr. Jerome Benzer was the third physician to examine the cyst on Sean's head in the last week. Benzer, protective goggles covering his eyes and a disposable surgical mask over his mouth and nose, poked at the knob with a gloved hand. The growth yielded beneath his fingertips like potter's clay. Sean, how long have you had this? I really don't remember. It never really bothered me, so I didn't think about it much, Sean said. Is it bothering you now? The doctor pressed on the growth. Sean winced, not out of pain, but surprise. No, it's just grown so much in the last couple of months it's become a nuisance. Has it ever broken through the skin? Has there ever been any drainage? Benzer grabbed a paper tape measure from a plastic bin attached to the wall. He stretched the tape across the cyst. 4.2 centimeters, about the diameter of a golf ball. No, but sometimes I feel it moving. The doctor chuckled. That's not possible. A cyst is nothing other than a closed pocket of cells containing liquid, pus, or other foreign material. The fact that you feel it moving is just your imagination. The doctor flopped back in his chair, his thin body being dwarfed by the piece of furniture. He lowered the mask off his face and pushed the goggles to his forehead. What I'm going to do is numb the area, open the cyst, and cut out the offending tissue. I'll cauterize the wound to staunch the bleeding and suture it closed. Twenty minutes tops and you'll be on your way home. Will it hurt? Other than the initial prick of the injection, you won't feel a thing. All right, let's do it. Before we begin, Sean, I'm just curious, why did the other doctors you've seen refuse to treat you? I don't know. They didn't say but there was something in their eyes that told me they were afraid. Afraid? Of what? I don't know, Doc. Maybe they felt it move? Dr. Benzer stood and pushed the small white button on the wall to page a nurse for assistance. While waiting for the nurse to arrive, he took a vial of Novocaine from the cabinet and filled a syringe with the colorless liquid. The nurse entered the exam room. Unlike the doctor, who wore street clothes instead of a blue smock, Nurse Kelly was dressed in the traditional white uniform. She carried a clipboard in her left hand. Sean presumed it was his medical chart and a surgical mask in the other. Nurse Kelly glanced at the clipboard a final time and, satisfied, set it on the desk. Hello, Sean, she said. I see we're here for a little slice and dice this morning. Sean did not find the nurse's sense of humor amusing. Nurse Kelly patted the padded, paper-covered exam table. Get your skinny butt over here and let's see what we've got. Sean moved from the chair to the exam table and hoisted himself onto the end. Nurse Kelly poked at the lump on Sean's scalp. Wow, that's a big one. You sure know how to grow them, Sean. Nurse, the doctor said, a little respect, please. Sorry, doctor. Sean, the doctor said, I want you to lay on your left side. While Sean got in position, Nurse Kelly prepared the instruments used for the extraction. Scalpels, forceps, a pair of scissors, and a wicked-looking curved needle with a length of surgical thread hanging from the blunt end, plus several other instruments that looked more like torture devices than tools used for medical purposes. Once the instruments were neatly laid out onto the sterile blue cloth, the nurse wheeled the cart closer to the doctor. This is going to sting, the doctor said, touching the point of the hypo needle alongside the cyst. Don't hold your breath. Breathe through it and it'll be less painful. Ready, Sean? Ready. The doctor pushed the plunger, pumping the syringe of Novocaine into Sean's scalp. The patient stiffened only after the initial injection. Two more squirts numbed the right side of Sean's head. Dr. Benzer took the scalpel and drew it across the lump. The flesh parted like an eyelid, revealing the orb beneath it. The doctor made a second incision around the base of the growth. The skin rolled back like someone peeling a grape. Then Nurse Kelly's eyes grew, as large as eggs. She pulled the mask off her mouth and whispered, Doctor, what is it? 
I don't know, Kelly, the doctor said, staring at what had just popped out of his patient's head. It wasn't a spider. It had too many legs. But a spider was the only way it could be described. Its bulbous body covered in fine white bristles was the color of spoiled milk. A triangular growth of what appeared to be bone sprouted from one end and served as a head. There were no eyes, just a pair of oversized mandibles jetting from the jaws of the creature, snapping in the air. A barbed stinger, about a quarter inch long, pulsed on the rear of the abdomen, a droplet of poison oozing from the end. The spider thing leaned forward, took a piece of Sean's scalp between its pinchers, and yanked. It shoved the strip of flesh into its tiny mouth. Feeling the tug on his scalp, Sean asked, "'How's everything going up there, Doc?' "'Just fine,' Spencer replied. He tried not to stutter as he watched the monster eat bits of his patient. "'A few more minutes and we'll be all good.' The doctor noticed the crack between the floor and the door. Whatever this thing was, it couldn't be allowed to escape. He had no idea what kind of disease or infection this this creature carried. We can't let it out of the room, he whispered. Doctor, are you sure everything's all right? Sean said. There's an awful lot of whispering going on. No, things are not all right. There's a monster sitting on your head, the doctor wanted to say, but said, everything's fine. Then, nurse, the door. Nurse Kelly moved slowly around the exam table towards the linen closet, standing in the corner of the room. She opened the door, grabbed a handful of towels and scrubs from one of the shelves, and wedged them under the door, sealing Benzer, Sean, and herself in the room with the creature. Sensing movement, the spider thing rose on a half dozen of its rear legs, shrieked, and jumped from Sean's head. It landed on the desk. The doctor gasped. Nurse Kelly screamed. What the hell is going on here? Sean bolted upright on the exam table. He touched the right side of his face. His fingers came away bloody. No surprise, the doctor had just sliced open his scalp. There was bound to be blood, but what was on the desk was the surprise. The atrocity scuttled across the desk, knocking the clipboard to the floor, frantically looking for an escape route. It jumped to the floor. The tiny nails on the tips of its legs clicked on the tile as it scampered towards the nurse. Look out, Benzer said. But his warning came too late. The creature attacked the nurse's ankle, raising its rear and plunged the stinger into her. Immediately, her ankle swelled to twice its size. Nurse Kelly shook her leg, each jolt sending stinging pain through her wounded ankle. The creature lost its grip and tumbled across the room. It smashed against the wall, righted itself, and darted towards the nurse again. Doctor! The nurse wailed, rubbing her injury. Hot to the touch, she feared infection. A scalpel! Dr. Benzer reached around Sean and across the exam table and plucked a scalpel from the instrument cart. He threw it at the fiend. The blade turned end over end, missed its mark, and stabbed the baseboard. The monstrosity stopped, raised its head, and even though it was blind, turned in Benzer's direction. It screamed and sprang at the doctor. Benzer stepped aside. The horror buzzed past his ear and landed like a fly on the wall next to him. Benzer grabbed another scalpel, spun around and stabbed the miscreation, pitting it to the wall like a bug in an insect collection. The creature wriggled to get free, but it was fixed, firm to the plasterboard. The immediate threat immobilized, Dr. Benzer turned to Nurse Kelly. I'm fine, the nurse said. She had managed to pull a roll of gauze from the cabinet and had bandaged her wound. Take care of the patient. Sean still sat on the exam table. The gaping wound on his head had stopped bleeding, but the right side of his face was caked with dried blood. His hair was dark with gore and stuck to his forehead in sticky clumps. Sean stared in disbelief at the thing impaled to the wall. Dr. Benzer used an antiseptic wipe to clean Sean's face. There was still a pink tinge to his skin, but at least when he left the clinic, it wouldn't look like he was wounded in some kind of battle. Sean's hair was another story. Benzer tried his best to wipe the drying blood from the strands. A good scrubbing with soap and water would be needed to complete the job. Before the Novocaine wore off, the doctor closed the patient's head wound. It took longer than anticipated. 
The creature had managed to eat quite a lot of the flesh around the perimeter of the opening. The doctor finished. Sean asked, what is that thing? I have no idea, the doctor said. Whatever it was, it stopped moving. I think it's dead now. A viscous black liquid ran down the wall, and the spider thing had turned the color of stone. The doctor looked at the creature. It certainly looks like it, but I think I'll leave it there for a while longer just to be certain. He turned to Sean. Is there anything else I can help you with today? Yes, doctor. Can you take a look at these? Sean lifted his shirt. His chest was covered with cysts. On behalf of the authors and the storytellers, thank you for listening to today's episode of The Wicked Library. The Wicked Library is a Ninth Story Studios production, ninthstory.com. If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. You can be a part of helping us keep the shows coming for as little as $2 a month. All supporters get wicked fun rewards like bookmarks, access to our archives, bonus stories, and more. The more generous you are, the more wicked the rewards are. The Wicked Library is proud to have Booth Junkie as one of our Season 8 partners. Booth Junkie is a YouTube channel dedicated to the tech of at-home professional voiceover, created by the very talented Mike Delgadio. If you've ever been interested in getting into voiceover, seeing what goes into voice work, or just can't get enough of Mike's voice, it's a great channel to watch. You can find the channel by going to boothjunkie.com. Complete credits and full show notes, including links and information from today's episode, can be found at thewickedlibrary.com. You can also find links to our Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes page. Until next time, go ahead, leave the lights on. It makes it easier to see your ass-fault smile. <laughs>